Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to season seven of Better Words. I can't believe we're up to season seven. (laughs) And we're also four years old now, so happy birthday to us. Yes, happy birthday, Better Words. And thank you for everyone who was commenting on Instagram and messaging us saying happy birthday. Cannot believe it's been four years and also that like a four-year-old, like we're like one year away from the podcast starting school. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It seems so long. I know. And you know what is um, both weird and sort of depressing in my current mind state is that I've literally come full circle and I'm now recording this in the same house where we started it. And I've lived in four houses since, three houses since. Yeah, it's been a bit of a wild ride, but at least be comforted by the fact, Michelle, that we've come a long way since we started recording that pod- this podcast in your bedroom. We had no idea what we were doing back then. Um, I mean, we still kind of don't, but we figured out some things. <laughs> I mean, we figured out how to make the sound better for one, which is yeah. great for all of you who are listening to us. Thank you. Um, so, yes, update. Hi, I'm in Australia now. Um, and I sadly live here again. Um, but yeah, we'll get to that another time. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a very tough time for me lately. Caitlin's been very understanding with our planning around all of this and stuff. Um, and it, I don't know, it may reflect in some of the books that I read and recommend because, um, I think just in general, there's some other stuff going on with my family and everything, which we'll like share on the podcast or anything, but um, it's a weird time for picking books <laughs> for me. Yeah. So I'll either go into my misery or I'll go completely the opposite way and just be, be recommending the happiest, sugary, yeah. most fun books ever that yes. everyone can <laughs> always use those reading recommendations. Absolutely. And like, I can already tell you, my escapism at the moment is Love Island, UK. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, obviously not a recommendation, but yeah, I watch that every morning, Australia time. I I watch it, the UK one, (laughs) and I catch up with it. Um, And it's just a nice, it's a nice escape living other people's dramatic lives. Um, And I've also, obviously these aren't my recommendations, but I will just say things that have been helping me have been Love Island as escapism. Also Wentworth, I started watching that TV show and I am absolutely addicted. And I just say these because obviously there are a lot of places in Australia now that are in lockdown. There are also a lot of people in the UK I know who are isolating (laughs) again Mm. uh, for various reasons. Honestly, find yourself some bingeable TV. Like I cannot stop watching Wentworth. I've watched three seasons in two weeks and I am absolutely hooked. It's so dramatic. It's so Amazing. over the top. It's so unbelievable, but it's so good. Yeah. So that's like a bonus right. recommendation. I love it. My lockdown comfort watch this time has been Brooklyn Nine-Nine because I saw the poster for the last season, which starts in like two weeks. And I was like, oh my God. 
the last season of my favorite TV show. And then I was like, oh, I should rewatch the entire thing <laughs> before the last season. So I am. The other thing I will recommend if you are in Australia in lockdown at the moment and want some comfort TV, you know that I love any sort of wholesome reality competition show mm-hmm. on, like from Britain, right? So Bake Off, Sewing Bee, Great Pottery Throwdown. They have just added to Australian Netflix Glow Up, which is makeup artistry. There are three seasons of that to watch. I watched one season on Sunday, like the whole season. And they've also added Interior Design Masters, which is another UK competition show. So honestly, there is nothing better than the most wholesome like they they don't they're not even like they're it's a competition but they're also nice to each other it's not like an american competition show and it's not like bloody my kitchen rules or anything mm-hmm. it's not overly or like win. yeah or like super over dramatic or anything like that no it is pure amazing skills so watch glow up and interior design masters i just might <laughs> I think I know I think you would really enjoy it especially like I know you're knitting at the moment it's mm. the perfect thing to put on in the evening while you're knitting you get really into it and the looks that they it is pure art on people's faces but they do really fun challenges where they have to do like real world things so like they will go to fashion London Fashion Week and have to get models ready and they've got that time pressure of like they're going on the catwalk in this. So they have to perform in real situations as well as do like amazing stuff in the studio. Mm-hmm, cool. So very cool. Yeah. Honestly, I think you'll love it. <laughs> I probably would. Yeah. Awesome. I'll go first and share my reading, my actual book recommendation. Yeah. For so this let's get on section. to the actual book recommendations. Welcome to season seven where we continue to ramble. Yes. I'll continue to ramble, continue to go on tangents, but my book recommendation is I've pulled one that I actually, I read this book in May um, and it came out in June um, and I've pulled it from our break because obviously we've been reading and preparing for the podcast. So all the books I've read recently will get their moment when we interview the author. Um, so pulling out a fun light read that I think people need to get on and read in lockdown because it's so, 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 so funny. And that is Acknowledgements by Becky Lucas, published by HarperCollins. So I did get a copy of this at work, but it is very, very funny. And if you haven't heard of Becky Lucas before, you probably will recognize her. Um, and you've probably seen her on like those quiz shows and game shows and things like that, that where comedians are on. She's a stand-up comedian. This book is... All the chapters are acknowledgements and she's thanking various people throughout her life for, you know, teaching her a lesson or whatever. So it's very funny. I mean, just like from the blurb on the back, it's like, thank you to the ex-boyfriend who was like, told me he was surprised he could get it up because I'm below his usual standards. (laughs) And like, you know, all these things. It's so, 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 so funny. There's like all the, you know, chapters are like, essays about funny stories from throughout Becky's life and there I know I just keep saying it's funny but god it's so funny and there's great stories about like the worst gigs she's ever done crazy stories from going to like festivals and on dating apps and all these funny things and my favorite part of the book that I kept mentioning at work and that I've told everyone about when I've mentioned this book <laughs> 
is there is one bit and it actually has nothing to do with the rest of the chapter but there's one bit where she just quickly says how she doesn't get poetry and doesn't really like poetry and that she thinks the best form of poetry is when your friends drunk drunkenly text you like disjointed messages and then there was a bit that's like the best poetry and it says you know it's like help where are you no wait I'll get a kebab then come or something and I'm like it sounds so good I love a comedic memoir slash essay collection as you know love like it sounds very much like Rosie Waterland style only maybe not with the uh slice of heartbreak on the side more just the funny stuff definitely not as yeah like intense I guess as Rosie's book but yeah so funny about you know the stories of like working on her comedy and doing these terrible gigs for nothing and I want to know more about that because I follow so many comedians and like there's such a big I'm actually not that good with Australian comedians in that in that I don't know them enough but I watch so many UK panel shows Mm. that I feel like I'm very across the UK comedy scene and so many of them have books coming out and stuff which I'm really excited for because I find it fascinating like what is their process for comedy and how do they how how is their life informed how they end up being on stage and I find that interesting like there was one story in Becky's book about how she was like going to be on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here Australia and then pulled out at the last minute (laughs) because she was like like everyone was like oh my god why would you do that um (laughs) just I just think that they didn't think that she would enjoy the experience um but so she ended up not going on the show but then in the time where she should have been like in the jungle filming this reality show, she got the opportunity to do stand-up on Conan O'Brien's late show in the US. And she's like the first Australian woman to do that or something. Like it's insane. So, so it's, it's like, like yeah. Yeah, exactly. What happens <sighs> is meant to happen and, you know, doors closing, opportunity, blah, blah. But, yeah, it's very funny. The cover is amazing it's a beautiful little um book it's all like strappy and colorful and it's so f- I like I guarantee anyone who reads this book will laugh several times and I think that's what we read <laughs> need right now yes a hundred percent yeah oh even just hearing about it makes me want to go and dig out like Eliza Schlesinger's memoir and like read it again or because even when I just love funny books man yeah. I love I've joked for years that my non-fiction reading is pretty much strictly female comedians and I have branched out a bit but I love a book written by a female comedian I am fascinated by people like Rosie for example who like the comedic memoirs I read tend to have like a more serious side Mm. um like Tom Allen's book No Shame was obviously a lot about you know how he grew up feeling like he didn't fit in at all and stuff so there's like serious side but I'm fascinated by writers especially comedians who can blend that like really dark with the light and you genuinely are like I should not laugh at this but it's so funny and it's the turn of phrase and it's just yeah I'm so I'm so excited for like a couple that are coming out in October by like particular comedians I like in the UK really excited for that so I will definitely add this to my list um what's it called again acknowledgements acknowledgements Yes, 
yeah yes acknowledgements by Becky Lucas oh that sounds amazing even just even just um another fun thing about the title that um the contents page of the book has like all the chapter headings and everything like that and then the acknowledgements and it says like acknowledgements for the book I think because the whole book is called acknowledgements (laughs) Acknowledgements. (laughs) (sighs) yeah funny excellent oh I love that okay well I've got another sort of quite fun uplifting recommendation as well um I promise we don't actually usually compare (laughs) these before we talk about them great now I can't wait to hear what you're going to say well it's another one from our break as well but I think it's very fitting because I genuinely it just made me so happy at a time where I was literally crying my eyes out in Heathrow Airport and so depressed to be coming back to Australia. So this book is called The Miseducation of Evie Epworth by Matson Taylor and it is so funny. The other reason I wanted to say it today is because August the 1st, uh, which was on Sunday when this was released, um, that is Yorkshire Day in the UK mm-hmm. and this book is set in Yorkshire and I feel like it's very, very Yorkshire. So I just was like, this is a fitting week to do this as a little salute to what is probably the best county in the UK. Um, so I think it's probably easier if I just read the blurb for you. Okay. Um, it is the summer of 1962. So, I mean, I love a 60s novel. Mm-hmm. And 16-year-old Evie Epworth stands on the cusp of woman. <laughs> 16-year-old Evie Epworth stands on the cusp of womanhood, but what kind of woman will she be? Until now, her life has been nothing special, a patchwork of school, guides, cows, lost mothers, lacrosse, and village fates. But inspired by her idols, Charlotte Bronte, Shelley MacLaine, the Queen, she dreams of a world far away from rural East Yorkshire, a world of glamour lived under the bright lights of London or Leeds. However, Christine, Evie's soon-to-be stepmother, a manipulative and money-grabbing schemer, is lining Evie up for a life of drudgery at the stinky local salon. The help of a few friends, a wise counsel of the two Adam Faith posters on her bedroom wall, brooding Adam and sophisticated Adam, (laughs) Evie comes up with a plan to rescue her future from Christine's pink and over-perfumed clutches. To succeed, she will need a little luck, a dash of charm and a big dollop of Yorkshire magic. But in the process, she may discover who exactly she is meant to be. And the reason I wanted to read it is because like it sort of sums up the sort of irreverent tone of it's it's a very, it's the sort of novel where from the first page you were just like, I'm in this person's head. And it's just so vivid. And immediately like the first chapter had me laughing out loud at something (laughs) happens and yeah she's she's just absolutely wonderful and it it just conjures up an image immediately of like mini skirts and like big eyeliner and all this sort of stuff of like someone a teenager in the 60s and for me obviously conjured up a lot of images of like (laughs) my fave very dorky show Heartbeat um, (laughs) which is also set in Yorkshire so it just conjured up a lot of images for me but it's a really lovely heartwarming book and it's got like a second storyline about um, Evie's dad and how he was widowed and um, she was quite young when she lost her mum and that's obviously affected her growing up so there's this like serious theme that runs through it but overall it's very uplifting and hopeful and I just love the the way that it's written and the way you are immediately like 
in Evie's head and you feel like you 100% know her. She's just in 3D colour, like straight away. It's brilliant. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah, I think you'd I think you'd really enjoy it. Just like it's not your usual read, I don't think. Um maybe like maybe it is. I think the history thing sort of I'm like, oh it's not really I don't see you reading much like historical fiction and stuff. And I guess in a way it is, but it doesn't feel like historical fiction. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I guess it's like <laughs> It's like that age old question, isn't it? It's like, what's historical fiction? Because the 60s was quite a long time ago, but you're right. Is it historical fiction? I guess it depends on the style of novel. Yeah, I don't (laughs) know. It doesn't doesn't feel like it. I had to keep reminding myself a little bit, like, that yes, this is like the 60s. Um, But I think for me, the 60s is an easy thing to imagine because, especially because it's set in Yorkshire, it's set on a farm. I just immediately like pictured heartbeat for a lot of it. So yeah. very, very easily came to life. I think it's a very vivid writing style and yeah, it just, it's really, really nice. And it's the sort of thing where you have like the, I'm going to show you, but like where you have like where she's surprised and the question mark, she's like, what? And the question mark gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so there's like a few things I like where quirky things in text sometimes. Yeah. yeah, or where they'll do like where she's falling and it and it kind of goes down the page and it's like falling, falling, falling. like it's really, really wow, clever. I love really I love cool. that sort of stuff. Yeah. 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 So awesome. it feels very, very vivid, I would say. It's really it's charming and lovely. Oh yeah, it sounds so charming. <laughs> it just it just makes you it is like it's like tea and scones and like makes you happy and that's a night these are nice uplifting things that we need right now uh, yeah. for multiple reasons um but yeah it's a delight it's a delight to read so yeah um and now we transition into a rather heavy subject of our first interview yeah it is a bit isn't it either way utterly fascinating so you better get to this interview Our guest today was born in Venezuela and moved around the world with her parents and two brothers before settling in London. She's a journalist and a writer who's published several historical fiction novels, but today we are discussing her chilling new alternative history, Widowland. Welcome to Better Words, Jane Finn. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think we've got a we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get right to it. And we want to obviously start with Widowland, which is just this stunning book, as Michelle was saying before, a little bit horrifying, but amazing. So can you please describe Widowland for us? It's an alternative history set in 1953. It's it's part thriller um, and part a sort of expression of joy in English literature, really. But I know that a lot of people are going to find it chilling and dystopic. Um, it's imagines a world in which England and Germany didn't actually go to war, but in 1940 um, agreed an alliance and have restored um, Edward VIII to the throne with his wife, Wallace. We're now in 1953, coronation year, which we know is year of the coronation of Elizabeth II, but actually in Widowland is the coronation of Edward and Wallace, and they've waited 13 years because they didn't want to get crowned until the leader would come from Germany to attend their coronation. 
so everybody's very excited. And I got this idea. I always remember my mother and my aunt saying that in 1953, everybody got very excited because it was going to be the coronation. And this was the first time people had television sets. That was the moment of cultural change for Britain. So the television set comes in. So I wanted to start in an office with our heroine, who's called Rose Ransom, and a television set is brought into the office and everybody's excited because they're going to get a day off and they're going to watch the coronation. One of the things that Rose's job in Widowland, she works for the culture ministry. And one of the things I was very interested in was sparked by my research into Nazi Germany. And it was to do with books. Now, if you ask me, you think, what's the big image of books in Nazi Germany? And you will say... People gathered in the centre of Berlin, tossing books onto a bonfire. That's what Nazis did. They burned books. But they did that. What they also did was something absolutely fascinating. There was an SS task force set up by a man called Alfred Rosenberg, who was a philosopher guru of Hitler. And the task force went through the occupied libraries of Europe, all the, all the nations that the Nazis had taken over. And it took out books, which were history books, and these scholars employed by the SS rewrote these books to correct history so that it more accurately reflected the National Socialist view of the past. And I was absolutely stunned by this. So once I discovered what uh, the Nazis genuinely did with um, rewriting history in World War II, I took this imaginatively and thought... What would it be like if you tried to rewrite English literature? And so Rose's job in the culture ministry is to look at the great classics of English literature, like Pride and Prejudice and Middlemarch and Jane Eyre, and to correct the portrayal of women so that they're not independent and feisty and intelligent, but they're a little more subservient and obedient to male authority, and they understand that marriage is about... um, putting the needs of the man first. And so this this is what Rose has to do. But obviously, you cannot read the great classics of English literature without being changed in yourself. So that's, that's what happens. Yeah, and I guess when we meet her as well, she's slowly starting to maybe question a few things that have, you know, been told to her her whole life. But it's very much that sort of world of any, it's a bit. It's a bit 1984 in the in the whole like you can't think that the time before is better, and it's a very heavy surveillance state. You could be you could be reported for anything. So there's this as you get into it, like see, it does feel quite chilling because immediately you've got this idea of being watched over. It's Big Brother, and it's a bit. It's all a bit scary, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I did love you know her talking about you know Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice and stuff. It's just sort of brings it all together and it's absolutely wonderful so um obviously we were saying there that women can't be independent in this society um can you explain a little bit more about the uh the caste system that is implemented in the alliance as part of this alternate history because i think that was the bit when i started reading about that i was like oh my goodness like this is just insane but it was amazing So one of the things that Alfred Rosenberg was really interested in was caste. And he believed that caste was a very good way of organizing society. And he really admired the Indian caste system. So in this dystopia of mine, he has brought this about, but it only applies to women. 
So women are graded according to their um, racial characteristics, their heritage, their, um, their looks, into a number of castes. And the castes range from class 1A right down to class 6C. And it being England, who loves to, English love to kind of nickname things and make light of terrible things. And so these castes have been given nicknames. And the elite caste are called Gellies after Angela Raubel, who was Hitler's niece and and his most beloved woman. And um, they're called Gellies. And the castes go down through Paulers, who are as nurses and people in the caring professions who named after Hitler's sister and um, Claras, who, who are women with more than four children, who named after Hitler's mother, right down to the bottom, which are the Friedas. And these are women over 50, single women with no children. And they're the most worthless in society. And so they get the lowest rations and they are condemned to live in very run-down, derelict areas on the edges of town called or nicknamed Widowlands. And um, I actually got this idea when I was looking um, for my other historical novels, my Clara Vine series, at the rationing system that applied in Germany in World War II. And this was, again, gradated according to you know, how many calories you got according to what kind of person you were. And the people at the end of World War II, the people that came at the bottom of the pile were called uh, Friedhofsfrauen, which means um, cemetery women. It was a nickname and it meant women over 50 with no children or husband. And they had the lowest rations because they were worthless. They were useless to society. And I thought, how wonderful if you get these marginalised women and actually, they're women who have agency because they have nowhere else to go. They have nothing else to fear. <laughs> Everything's been taken from them. And the other thing we know about women um, of this age, because I'm over 50, is they're, they're literate. They actually read novels. They're probably the most literate section in the society in the, that, that I've created because they can remember novels. And um, now that novel write, reading is very, very circumscribed, You've got these pools of women who actually can remember what literature is. So this this really appealed to me. At the beginning of the plot, the plot begins, the leader is about to arrive, and there are rumours of an assassination attempt, which is worrying the authorities tremendously. And then something terrible is happening, something embarrassing, which is that graffiti from these Samizdat novels of English literature are appearing single lines on public buildings, um, lines by Mary Wollstonecraft and by Virginia Woolf and by Charlotte Bronte. And it's driving the authorities mad because it's going to be embarrassing. It's going to look to the leader like they can't control their own province. And so Rose is drafted in to try and find out where this, this insubordination is coming from. And she's sent into the widow lands to try and see if she can trap the culprits. I love the idea of graffiti from like classic literature. It's like such highbrow graffiti. <laughs> it is. It's all very feminist graffiti. It's wonderful. Yeah, feminist highbrow <laughs> graffiti. I love it. Um, speaking of the leader as well, it's really interesting that you chose not to specifically name Hitler, but we obviously we all know that's who the leader is. So can you tell us a little bit about that decision as well? Yeah, it was a real, it was a, a, a very definite decision um, for, for several reasons. One, 
I wanted it to be slightly more generic because elements of this dystopia are taken from so many existing societies, but also from things like East Germany and and some of the very repressive regimes that we see elsewhere in the world. And I thought that if he was just called the leader, it gave a more generic feeling to what what pertains. Um, also, I, I think the trouble with using the word Hitler is that as soon as you do use the word Hitler, it becomes almost a meme. You know, it's like that law of internet, which is that how many how long it takes for any argument to use the word Hitler. So I wanted to avoid the word Hitler, even though I've used many, many accessories of his life. And so you do recognise that it's Hitler. But I also very much wanted you to think this could be anywhere. You know, this this has got elements of anywhere. And there's something about calling someone the leader that actually does um, depersonalise that um, that individual. And I wanted that sense of depersonalization as well. And there's a, there's a line in which I say, look, actually, now everything's got back to normal. You know, the fighting's over and the alliance is in place. People didn't really mind as long as, you know, they had food and stability they, and a, a strong leader. They didn't much care what that leader stood for, you know, as long as there was order. Now, of course, and I know you're going to ask me this before I even <laughs> said anything, but I had actually finished this novel before the pandemic. And um, I remember sitting with the publisher when they were buying the book and and somebody saying oh yeah you know this virus is coming what's what's this all about you know but it was a very minor part of our conversation and it's amazed me and sort of horrified me to see during the pandemic in britain how readily people adapt to extremely stringent curbs on their behavior now i'm not saying those stringent curbs weren't necessary in the grip of this virus but what I'm saying is I'm very interested in the speed with which my fellow citizens um, joined in denunciations, for example, of their neighbours, quick to ring the police if they saw somebody having a cup of tea in the garden, you know, with their mother or something. And um, the, the excesses sort of horrified me. And very much as a, as a British person, too, because we've always had this myth of exceptionalism that, you know, that... Um, Fascism would never have happened in, in England because we've got a sense of humour and we're, we don't believe in following rules like this. And so everything that's happened in the last 14 months has, has for me, questioned that myth. And really, I suppose I wanted to show that actually the characteristics of human beings under a state of fear is the same whatever human beings they are. People behave the same. You will always get the same proportion of dissenters, the same proportion of people who want to uh, just comply and keep their heads down, and the same proportion of people who actively go around denouncing others. It's 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 a, really a sobering realisation. Yeah, it has definitely been interesting. And I think that there has been so many, you know, odd comparisons to, you know, you think like of the movies and TV shows and books and things like that, that we'd all seen and read before or during and you think you'd never act like that but nothing like this has ever happened before so we didn't know how we were going to act and it has been uh interesting to say the least (laughs) I mean my whole process of writing the Clara Vine novels which is my other series under the name Jane Thin is that which I've written six of now in which you have a the protagonist Clara lives in Nazi Germany and she's Anglo-German but she works for British Intelligence 
I mean, I've had to imaginatively think how I would react. Um, you know, we all know stories of brave heroines of the SOE who act with amazing, um, amazing courage. And I've had to ask myself, so I've had to put myself into the situations. I'm sure I wouldn't be courageous like that. I know, I know I wouldn't. Um, when you look at the people, particularly the heroines of the SOE and how brave they were, I know that I wouldn't be like that. But I've had to, my whole process of fiction for the last sort of 10 years has been imaginatively saying, what would I do if I was in a society whose rules I didn't agree with, and which was very oppressive? And so when it came to writing Widowland, here you have a situation which is a police state, and it's very frightening. And the protagonist begins by being totally in alignment with um, the rules and regulations. But through the through the medium of reading English literature, she comes to see and understand about agency and about standing up for yourself. And um, I think that um, that was really, it's, a, it's an issue that interests me tremendously. Because mm, it's almost like once you, once you see that, you can't unsee it. And I think one of the most interesting things that I've experienced or, or seen regarding, you know, that sort of Again, it's this idea of like, oh, well, we're good people. We would never do this. We would never elect a fascist leader or anything like that. But I think the most sobering thing is to go to the Imperial War Museum in London um, and to go through the Holocaust exhibition. Um, And I, I think it's very clever the way that they have set that out. I don't know if you've ever been, Jane, but... Um, the way that you walk through. And I mean, I, I think we spent, you know, three or four hours in there reading everything and the way that they've laid it out is really does take you through each incremental little thing. And you can see how for the average citizen, little changes, little things might not have seemed that oppressive for the average German that was not of the group being oppressed. And I think it's very easy to see how things can little by little build up until it is too late to to stop it and it does take those people who have the bravery to stand up and I think like you say as well like if I'm really being honest with myself I'm probably the sort of person who would just go along with the rules because it's an easier life it is an easier life than actually standing up for those things and as you say those those people who did do that and and people even now in those sorts of regimes who do stand up against oppressive regimes are so much braver than than I could ever be, and and they they deserve all the praise for that. Because, yeah, I really don't think we all like to think that that we could do it, but it's yeah, it's a lot to to put your to to basically, I guess, put other people's well being ahead of your own life, knowing that you're probably going to either go to jail or or to to get killed, probably true and I think what you've pinpointed there is the really the great preoccupation certainly of in European culture of the last 80 years which is you everybody looks at the Nazi experiment and the the um the slow accretion of fascism and everybody asks the question you've asked which is at what point do, do people actually start to say no and then realize that they they can't say no and it's tremendously it's fascinated me obviously because I've written um, about Germany from 1933 onwards to to look at ordinary people and at what point you suddenly look around and you realise you've, you've given up your civil liberties and, and that it's too late. 
Um, another thing that really interests me, so I'm, I'm doing sequel to Widowland now, um, without giving any spoiler away about the end of Widowland, but there is a sequel set three years later. And in, in the research for this, I've been looking at the, something called the Auschwitz trials of 1963. So what happened in 1963 was that there was a lone German prosecutor who discovered that the local character in Frankfurt had been a guard at Auschwitz and discovered and um, found out about what he'd done and decided he should be prosecuted. He faced enormous resistance, but one of the interesting parts of the resistance was that most people he spoke to had never heard of Auschwitz. They had no idea what Auschwitz was. And even though we in the rest of the world have these images of Germans being taken through concentration camps so they could see what's happened in their name, by 1963, that was not popular knowledge. And even when they were then told what Auschwitz was, um, they didn't want to know. And they didn't think, the majority of people didn't think that prosecution should go ahead and that, um, you know, that it should all be basically a line drawn under. And so what I'm fascinated by is the airbrushing of history and how quickly people who were perpetrators of a regime can go, look, that was then. It's not healthy to look back. Um, and so what, what I've got in, in the sequel is that you've got major leaders and perpetrators who are saying, really, I have very little to do with that, actually. I was very much at the centre of that dispensation. And, and, and I know that if there had been, um, you know, if World War II had not happened or if, if, if Germany and England had got, not gone to war, that would have happened, and indeed, obviously, did happen um, in in many respects. Well, the uh, the current the current inquiry into COVID in Britain must um, must be giving you a lot of inspiration. Then certain characters are claiming that they were absolutely had nothing to do with anything that happened. Yet at the time, we're very happy to stand by those people and let them make decisions. True, this is politics. Um, I wanted. But actually, so when I was writing Widowland, I really wanted to do a thriller. I wanted to do a fast-paced thriller. So it, it, although it is about politics and it is about how people react in a state of fear, it's also a thriller. You know at the beginning that in two weeks' time the leader's going to come and there are assassination rumours. And I was actually quite inspired by Day of the Jackal, you know, which has got that very tightly, tight time frame. You know that he's going to try and kill um, de Gaulle for anyone that doesn't know the plot um, and so and also you know that de Gaulle didn't get killed interestingly so you follow it very closely um, and so I wanted it really really set over a very tight time scale and I wanted that your main character to turn from somebody who's completely compliant and just vaguely hears about these rumours to being right at the centre of this attempt and it's so so that's so I hope actually people just read it as a thriller apart from anything else and 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 want to know what happens definitely you've nailed that <laughs> absolutely now i believe that widowland was partially inspired by a specific encounter that you had after your husband had passed away so would you mind telling us a bit about that and how that inspired the novel most novels you write you've been thinking about them for ages this novel appeared in an instant and it happened like this so i was uh, married for 27 years to a wonderful man um, called Philip Kerr, who's a um, best-selling thriller writer, also wrote a lot about Nazi Germany. And um, he died in March 2018, and um, after a very sort of harrowing but short um, illness. 
So anyhow, there you are. He he had died, and I went out to lunch with a very very old friend from the newspaper I've worked on for a long time. So I've known him for ages, and he was kind of you know I'm so sorry to hear about Phil, and he said look, would really love to invite you to to dinner, and I said that's fantastic, great, you know when, and he said but we only have couples to dinner, and I was like. Oh, I'm walking home from the lunch and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm in Widowland now. And then thinking as I walked home, what if Widowland wasn't a metaphor? What if it was a place? And um, then just going up to my office and writing down a little bit of the synopsis. So it was kind of, it was just that, that idea that you would go from being one category of person to be a sort of slightly marginalised category of person in the blink of an eye. This this was, it was extraordinary. And of course, everybody knows, you know, when, when things happen to you in life, I mean, and lots and lots of women are widowed and they experience this. But, it, and, and in all sorts of other ways of life, people suddenly find themselves marginalised. But it's always a bit of a shock, you know, and this was a tremendous shock, actually. Although, of course, he didn't mean it. But it was brilliant because it was the it was the inspiration for me. That's where it came from, and you know it's it's also people say something about oh I just wrote a novel in, in six weeks, but of course it's taken years of your preoccupations to, that you bring to that novel. So that was the spark. But my preoccupations were very much um, in the last ten years of writing about the experience of women in Germany during wartime and pre-war under the Nazi regime, which was most extraordinary. It began because I was reading about Hitler in 1923 when he was in prison, way back, 10 years before he became leader. And he was in prison and he decided when he became leader, he was going to set up a Reich Fashion Bureau, a National Fashion Bureau for women that would strictly outline what they would wear and where they would get the clothes from. And I was just very struck by this, how incredibly precise and detailed this attempt to control women was. It controlled women in every way. So from the moment you're, you're 10 and you join the, uh, the Deutsche Mädel, right through to when you become a teenager and you might join the Faith and Beauty Society or when you, you want to marry into the SS and you have to go to residential bride school, you become a mother, you have to attend mother service. The lives of women were minutely controlled. And I thought, and this minute control, of course, is a hallmark of the way that um, totalitarian societies are run. But women, specifically, and I, I survived, I transferred that to England. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, this, this novel couldn't have existed, even with that encounter, it couldn't have existed in the, the form that it does without all your experience of writing and knowing all these things. Um, and as you said, also, your husband also wrote about Berlin in the 1930s and stuff. So was that something that you sort of both, a passion you both shared for that history and that time period? I've always been obsessed by the 1930s because I think it, 1930s were a very interesting time when the world was poised between fascism and communism. And you got people who just jumped either way, could have been fascist, could have been a communist, and it sort of seemed very little between it. And then I became fixated by, or not fixated, but very interested by a woman called Magda Goebbels. Magda Goebbels was um, the wife of the propaganda ministry. Uh, Minister Joseph Goebbels, we've all heard of him. 
she had grown up um, in a Jewish household. She had um, a Jewish boyfriend slash fiance, and he taught her Hebrew. She wore a Star of David. He said his name was Victor Alosarov, and he went off to try and found a state of Israel in what was then British-occupied Palestine. And off he went from Berlin, leaving her in Berlin. And she then met Joseph Goebbels. The rest is history for her. But um, he came back in 1933 in April, and he was walking down the street in Berlin. He passed a library. He looked in, and he saw a wedding photograph. And there was his ex-girlfriend, Magda, marrying Joseph Goebbels, the arch-persecutor of the Jewish people. And, and you know, you know who was best man and um oh my god and he, he he relates or he related that he almost fainted on the street he went off he tried to recover himself and then he thought actually i can try and make use of this i need to get i need to get in contact with magda see if she can help me get jewish people out of what was then right at the beginning of nazi germany and we know he got in contact with magda but we don't know what happened. And so that was the beginning of Black Roses, which is my first book with Clara Vine, that I thought, what if what if a character comes who becomes a go-between between Alosarov and, and Magda? And what the world knows of Magda is that she had six children and right at the end in the bunker, she poisoned her six children. Um, and, you know, this is that horror. Everybody's very, very struck by that awful story. But I could see in Magda Goebbels this strange situation in which two different ideologies were at war. And she might well have been a Zionist going out to Israel to found a state of Israel. But she turned out to be married to Joseph Goebbels, killing herself in the bunker in 1945. So that, that seemed to be extraordinary. And that's, that's um, one of the reasons I'm interested in the 1930s. But Widowland is set in ni- the 1950s, um, except that... Rosenberg, the protector, has tried to preserve England in a sort of, almost in a state of aspic. He's created his own little utopia as he sees it, not as we see it. I can't believe that back when I wrote this novel, I wrote what seemed to me amusing then, in which Rose's sister Celia says, um, all foreign travel's banned. She said, I don't care. Who wants to go to South France when you can go to Felixstowe? Um now that I would put your listeners probably don't know where Felix Stowe is, but you know, let me tell you, it is not the south of France. And yet today, as I speak to you, we're in a situation in which the British government wants to ban all foreign travel, has effectively banned all foreign travel. And everywhere I go, people go, who cares? I go, I'd rather go to Cornwall. You know, who cares? And it's extraordinary. I can't believe that that um, you know that it's come to pass in such a short. Yeah, I mean, exactly the same. What were we all saying? Like, oh, I don't care as long as I can see my, fr- my, my four other friends in the garden for a legal, socially distanced chat. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know. It's, it's so crazy. And it's, I mean, it's the same in Australia. Everyone's like, oh, whatever. We'll just explore our own backyard, as um, we say over here. Everyone just wants to travel around Australia because lots of people would have never left their own state but have gone overseas. So yeah. I don't well, know. even it's more in England because it's cheaper and easier to travel than it, it like to Europe than it is to to go anywhere in England sometimes. So you know, God, for most so people, weird. going to Portugal or you know they've got their place where they go every year for their sunny holiday, and 
it's such a big adjustment for people. Um, and 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 the the point that you make, Caitlin, about people go, I don't mind. It's more important to see my family in the back garden. The great problem is because we want to be upbeat. We want we have a kind of human instinct to make the best of a situation and to concentrate on the essentials. I don't mind as long as I can see my family, as long as I can go out once a day. That you easily give away what your freedoms are because you don't want to be. Um, grumbling you don't want to be problematic you understand there's a big big there's a big big global emergency and yet it's very interesting that our prime minister boris johnson said um two years ago he said what you find is it's very very much easier to take people's liberties away than it is to give them back and he's on record as saying that you take liberties away because there's important reasons you take them away everybody understands people don't People don't want to be babies. But then do you really need to give them back? Because why can't you sit in the garden? You know, the garden's nice, you know. So this is why, and you sound a pain if you're banging on about civil liberties in the middle of a global emergency. You sound selfish. It isn't selfish because if some people don't, then you, you, you give up the past and then you get to a point when it's too late. People get used to a certain way of life. Oh, we don't want to go abroad anyhow. Oh, we don't want to... Actually, I'm happy with, you know, the brand of cereal I get. Those things. Yeah, it is very interesting. I mean, I can't believe that you had written this and imagined this world. But, you know, I guess it's human nature coming to pass a little bit in how we've reacted to things, really. Like you say, like it could be any time, any place. It's just that you've happened to do it through the lens of Nazi Germany. I, I went to the Stasi archives, um, which are a, a place of horror, really, because what they discovered is one in nine of the population were police informers. And very, very commonly, um, the members of your family, your kids or husbands and wives informed to police on each other. And um, so I was definitely drawing, um, drawing from that. I mean, one of the other things I'm very interested in is the use of psychology by governments. Even back in the 1930s and 40s, Goebbels was fascinated by psychology. All, all the Nazis were. Unfortunately for them, they also saw it as, as Jewish and therefore, you know, was, should it be frowned upon. But psychology was an important way of controlling a population. And um, so this is very much in the, in the world of Widowland. The government is interested in psychology. There's a psychology department. And... I'm afraid we see this in real life as well, that we know that one of the reasons that, that one of the ways that you can control people is through fear. And we, I don't know if you know about the Maslin pyramid of needs. Yeah. We need food and shelter, and then we go up through a pyramid. Up to self-actualization. Correct. Um, and so one of the very, very deep and primal emotions we have is fear. And once you, um, if you unleash fear and you appeal to fear, People respond very strongly to that. But the great danger is if you make a population fear each other, which is what's where we are in Woodowland, how do you put that back in the box? You know, how do you stop people fearing each other? If you do believe, as in East Germany, that you're probably being spied on, you have this sense of perpetual, you know, vigilance and, and that's a very unsettling thing. I think also if you look at literature, look at look at the popularity of um, espionage and spy thrillers now. I think that's all very much related, certainly in Britain, to the num the amount that you are spied on. So in Britain, we have the biggest number, largest number of CCTV cameras out outside 
China per head of population. So we're very, very surveilled. And I think it feeds into your subconscious and it makes you feel observed. And if I look for a kind of connections in all spy novels, it's that. It's that the protagonist feels observed. They're watchful. They feel that they're, um, somebody is watching them at every... And that's what's very, very interesting. So that's why I made in the Clarivine novels, I made my protagonist an actress because she would already have that feeling people are looking at you all the time. But then she goes into a society where people really are watching you all the time. And of course, now I live in London. So, you know, people are watching you everywhere, you know, whether it's from your next door neighbor's little kind of camera or whether it's just traffic cameras everywhere. You are being watched. And that that definitely affects, I think, your psychology. Now, to be upbeat, it's a fast it's a fast read with a kind of, I hope, heartwarmingly romantic ending. The romance bit was, um, you know, I can't resist a love story. I wanted a love story. And um, she is, of course, reading reading love stories for her, for her work. And so um, I loved the idea that she wouldn't know that the actual object of her eventual love was standing right in front of her. So I, I kind of, I like that too. Um, but I very much wanted, wanted it to be a mixture of thriller, love story, kind of dystopia. Now, we have mentioned a couple of times, obviously you have other historical fiction novels um, that you've published as Jane Thin. So why did you want to publish Widowland with a pseudonym? Probably because, like you, I've been a journalist. And when you're a journalist, it's really drummed into you that you, you know, adherence to facts, or at least it used to be, you know, um, been very, very kind of, I must get the facts in my historical novels. I believe it very strongly. And particularly if you're dealing in an era like World War II, which is a huge emotional thing, adherence to fact is really crucial for me in my historical fiction. And then you fictionalise the gaps in between. And then it occurred to me, what would it be like just to play, just to kind of um, not have to have that and just to be able to imagine how things would have been different. And I thought, well, maybe I should do it under a different name because it's such a different thing, although in many ways it is also the same thing. So I chose my mother's maiden name because it's a very feminist novel in a way. And so I chose my mother's maiden name and my initials the other way around. But it's been a real pain, I can tell you. Uh, I wish I hadn't done it now um, because uh, people keep going, why are, you, why are you publicizing this novel that's not by you? You know, I, I did it for a reason and it's also been quite fun being a different persona, but it's been um, an, an administrative hassle, I have to say. I do find um, pseudonyms so interesting because I do know that, you know, people do it if they write in a different genre or if they write for kids as well as adults and things like that. But yeah, I can imagine um, doing publicity and things like that doesn't, it's not as simple <laughs> Quite, I mean, Carrie's a good name because everybody can pronounce it. It's right at the beginning of the alphabet. And I do... Because I'm kind of always imagining different characters, I quite like the idea of building a little persona for C.J. Carey that isn't quite me. So there you are. It is it, it, it is kind of a fun thing. And I, I'm definitely going to continue writing in both names. So I've got another Clara Vine novel coming and I've got, I'm doing the sequel to Widowland as C.J. Carey. So um, I like the idea of having both and doing slightly 
two slightly different things. That's wonderful. And I'm very excited for a sequel to Widowland as well. Um, and I'm sure most people will be once they once they finish the book too. Um, sorry, we didn't get to chat about anything else, but it's one of those books that occasionally, you know, we, we do like to ask about other things around writing routines and things like that. But there are a couple of books that you know, there's just so, just much, so much to in unpack. It. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just fascinating to hear your process behind, um, you know, writing it and also just the way that, you know, your other research has also fed into this. And it just is absolutely fascinating. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Can you please tell us where people can find and follow you online? So I have a Facebook page, which is called Author Jane Thin. T-H-Y-N-N-E. I'm on Twitter, at Jane Finn. I'm on Instagram, author Jane Finn. I also have a website, which is www.janethin.com. So, you know, you, it's frankly, you can't get away from me. It's awful. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, you, you can find my books on Amazon and in lovely bookshops in Australia too. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Mm-hmm.